Today is August 28th, 2020, and this is Sam Walking in the World, episode 17. You cannot believe that it is August 28th. This summer has gone by so fast. I think maybe because of COVID. Like, as a school teacher, we were out of school in, like, April. And so I think sometimes people conflate summer vacation with summer. Summer itself goes all the way until September 21st. Where I live, <clears throat> where I live, the weather is nice all the way into probably, I mean, mid-October. It's really beautiful weather. And this one seemed to have started, this vacation seemed to have started in April. Um, we were still working, but we were working from home. And I worked during the summer, but I worked from home. And it just seems like this has been one, one long summer, which I really have enjoyed. It's one of the, uh, I guess, upshots of uh, this whole COVID thing. Anyway, I didn't even even intend to say all that, but I'm going to get right to show prep. Um, And stupid stuff, I have, uh, first I have to announce that I have a German listener. Actually, I'm not sure if the person is German, but they're listening from Germany. So now I have an Irish listener and a German listener. So guten tag. Um, Please spread the word about the show. I would love to become a fully European podcast, if that could be possible. But anyway, welcome to the show. <clears throat> um, and then in stupid stuff, I also am going to talk about uh, sticky hands, a little bit of an OCD check. Um, and happiness hints, uh, I'm going to talk about why it's important to celebrate the athletic feats of the old. You'll know more about that when I explain it. I have a few language points I'm going to get to. Uh, I am going to put my teacher hat on for this uh, a brief period of this episode uh, where I'm going to talk about something from history that I think is commonly misunderstood and misused in argument, and that is the three-fifths compromise. Uh, and then in larger things, I'm going to talk about a couple things. One is coping with uncertainty, which is very difficult for me, has been very difficult for me. And uh, my approach to it over the last couple of years has been a benefit to me and made me more happy, I guess. And then I'm going to talk about <clears throat> the old Occupy Wall Street movement. I don't know if you guys remember that, uh, but it was uh, basically uh, protesting the unequal distribution of wealth that we have in America. And uh, I'm going to react to a few people, a few f- celebrities who had a strong opinions about it and uh, a story about something that happened between me and Alec Baldwin, <laughs> believe it or not. He and I had a back and forth. Um, and I don't even really know the man well. I know his brother, but um, I'll talk more about that when I get to it. It's kind of interesting. Okay, first, stupid stuff. Um, I have a question <clears throat> for those of you who are as OCD as me or are struggling with OCD the way I am. And the question is this, how long can you leave your hands sticky after you eat something or, or smelly? Suppose you ate like a blooming onion. Um, my mother used to tell me that I was so OCD when I was little that I would not eat a popsicle unless I had my hand wrapped in a napkin or a hand towel of some kind. We called them muppets or uh, Italian American lingo. But, I just could not enjoy the popsicle while parts of it were dripping on my hand. 
I guess the same goes for fudgicles. Fudgesicles, depending on how you pronounce it. But how long can you leave your hands smelly or sticky before you have to wash them? Does it erode your pleasure of, the, of the, you know, your amount of enjoyment eating the thing that you know is dripping on your hands? Ice cream cones, things like that. And I just, as, a, as an exercise the other day, I was eating a popsicle. Actually, it was a fudgesicle. And I just allowed the fudgesicle melting to go on my hand. And I tried my best to just continue enjoying the fudgesicle without immediately starting to think about how quickly I could wash it off my hands. That may sound crazy to some of you. It may sound right on the button to others. But uh, I did it on purpose because I just wanted to make sure the sky wouldn't fall. And I kept looking up at it as it was dripping down my thumb and my index finger and my into my palm and I, it was like, oh, my God, I got to wash this hand. The sky never fell. So just so you know, the sky will not fall if your hands get sticky or smelly. Okay, happiness hints. Um, I'm going to talk about, uh, I said in the, in the opening, that I'm going to talk about celebrating the athletic feats of the old. I'm going to tell you about a tradition that my three friends and I have had for about the last 20 years. And it's a, a wiffle ball tournament. We play two-on-two wiffle ball. I'll just tell you quickly how you can manage to play two-on-two without, you know, without more people. And it goes like this. The first, the centerpiece of making it work is that you have to have a strike zone that no one argues about. So we use a lawn chair, one of those low, low-sitting beach chairs. And we put it behind a home plate, and we say anything that hits it in the air is a strike. It can hit the pipes of the chair. It can hit the actual chair itself. But if it hits the chair in the air, it is a strike. And if you foul tip with two strikes and it hits the thing, it's like the catcher catching it and you strike out. Uh, and it works like a charm. We never I don't think we've ever had an argument, maybe one in 20 years, about whether something was a strike. And then we have rules about if you feel the ball cleanly on the ground, it's an out. If you catch it in the air, it's an out. If it goes past the line, it's a double. If it goes over the line, it's a home run. It's really pretty simple. You can apply it to any environment. Highly, highly recommend it. And it's mostly just like like baseball. It's mostly just a pitching duel. And with the wiffle ball, once you get good at it, you can make it curve. You can make it drop. You can make it curve the other way. And um, it makes for very interesting um, fun. Uh, so I want to tell you quickly, we, we've been playing this since we were probably in our late 20s. And it is joyous every time we do it. And, and we used to care a lot about who won. I mean, we really cared. We, we, would, we would go down to my buddy's house in Boston. And his family would go away. So we had the whole place to ourselves. And, and we would create the field. And, and literally, it would be all we were thinking about the night before. We'd probably go out to dinner or something like that. But everybody's mind was on the, the wiffle ball tournament the next day. We'd play all day. We used to play best of five. I mean, best of seven, I think. You had win. No, I don't think we ever did that. Best of five. You had to win three games. And we played nine inning games. And as time went on, we got older. Um, we continued to play, but we became old people. And we just recently played a tournament. And I, I had to stop for a second in the middle of it and appreciate how a couple of my friends... I guess myself included, since I've had my hip surgery, we can still do pretty cool things with our bodies. 
Um, I remember one one play where I I hit a line drive, or actually no, my friend Mike hit a line drive, and my friend Joe was playing in the field, and he did this kind of diving, falling catch. Imagine a wiffle ball hit really hard, really quickly toward you, maybe five or six steps to your right, and without even thinking, just eye hand coordination, body movement, diving catching the ball with two hands, holding onto it while you roll on the ground. For a guy pushing 50, I thought that is pretty, that's pretty incredible. And I've seen it even with people that are older than that. I've seen every time now I see it with somebody that is aging or, you know, old an older person, and I see an act of, of athletic prowess, I try in my mind to celebrate it because it's really kind of a cool thing. And where I'm going with this is, believe it or not, this is related. Loose teeth tighten back up by themselves in most cases. Why do I bring up loose teeth? Because the night after the wiffle ball tournament, uh, we were swimming in my friend's Matt's pool. And we were taking turns going off the diving board. These guys pushing 50, doing cannonballs and what we used to call can openers, where you just try to create as much suction entering the pool as you could so the splash would go as high as you could make it. And we were pretty good at it. And when I was a kid, I used to be able to to do somersaults. Um, I still can. I, I knew I still could do it. But I was like, Jesus, it's kind of kind of scary to think you're going to hit this board that's only about seven feet long. It's not, you know, it's one of those backyard swimming pool diving boards doesn't have a ton of bend to it. So you really got to hit it hard with both feet. And I thought to myself, standing on the back of the board, when I was about to do a cannonball, I thought, you know what? I'm going to do my somersault. I used to be able to do one flip in the air and then open into a dive. I guess you call it a one and a half. Um, but this time, I don't know why I felt adventurous. I was just going to hit the board and start tucking and just spin as much as I could. And so I did it. And I went around all the way around once. I must have gotten very high. Went all the way around once. And then the second time around, instead of opening in a dive, I just stayed tucked in that little ball. And my face smashed into the top of the pool. The, the top of the, the surface of the water, obviously. And the impact on my face caused my teeth to bite. Which is oddly how most concussions happen. Teeth crunched together. Um, maybe I should have had a mouthpiece in but I didn't, and the force of my jaw connecting with the top of my mouth caused one of my bottom teeth to bang into the corner of one of my caps on my top tooth. It's like, I don't know if it's bonding or a cap or whatever, but it just broke the corner of my tooth clean off. It must be that it was part of the bonding because there's no nerves exposed, so I don't think it's really my own tooth, And um, but, it, but it broke off. And so now I can feel this little spot on the left side of my front teeth where there's like a little piece missing. And I, at first it felt very odd with my tongue. Just when something's not the way it's normally supposed to be in your mouth, you notice it and then obsess on it. I do. But I got used to it. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, you know what? It doesn't look that bad. And since it doesn't hurt, I'm just going to kind of wait until my next dentist appointment and ask them what I should do. Back in the day, I would have been calling trying to make an appointment yesterday. But I thought, you know what? How important really is this? 
I thought at the time what was more important was that I'm an old man and I just did almost a double flip off the diving board. And I thought to myself, it, I was so glad I did it. And then if, and if, my first thought was, oh, I wish somebody, like I was talking about in a previous episode, I thought I wish somebody had captured that on their phone camera or their video. Then I thought, you know what? It doesn't even matter. I kind of had this chipped tooth as a testament to the fact that I did something athletic and, and, and in a way kind of reckless, which I don't normally do. And I'll have that now as a memory. People go, oh, God, what happened to your tooth? Which most people don't even notice. Some people do. When they do, they'll be like, oh, I was just doing a double somersault off a diving board. I'm so proud of myself. And all my friends, my friends, all three of my friends who are continue to do daring things physically. And I think that's very important as a person gets older to stay in touch with the things that they did athletically when they were younger. So they can continue to feel that great feeling of doing something athletic with your body. Um, my family does it still. My brothers do it. Um, I'm not sure about my dad anymore, but he did it well into his 60s. Uh, my dad was fast. I guess we're all fast. All the all the all the boys and my sister. She played soccer. Um, she was she was going to play soccer in college, but anyway, I guess I just feel lucky that I was from an athletic family, and I really appreciate the athletic feats, especially of the old. I don't know why I told you all that, but I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about a few things that have to do with language. I'm going to talk about winging it. What does it mean to wing it? And um, as I was putting notes in for this episode, I. I go to my hopper, this other file, where I keep stuff that I happen to have ideas for and I'm not sure when I want to talk about them, so I put them in my hopper. And I thought to myself, hopper? How, did that, how the heck did hopper become what you call that thing? And because I'm asinine, I decided to look it up, so I'll share that with you. And then uh, more about the three-fifths compromise. I'm going to talk about coping with uncertainty and then the Occupy Wall Street movement and larger things. So I will get to all that after this quick break. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 17. That message was brought to you by a rapper crossing his arms with attitude at the end of a rap. Now, moving on to language. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about Hopper. It's in the Hopper. Hopper originally, well, I think it still is, a part of an agricultural or industrial machine. It's a sorting device. Separates things like, from gr like grain from chaff or gold or other precious metals or gems from the mud and the rock. The hopper is a device. It shakes and allows the undesired matrix to fall away. And it leaves behind the coveted grain or, or mineral. The term in the hopper comes from the word hopper, an English word, first seen in 1277. And it has come to be used as um, a word that describes the sorting device in mills or um, mineral plants. And so I guess it makes sense. I put thing in. I'll put something in the hopper, and hoping that it distills in my mind enough so that I know exactly what it is that I feel like sharing about it. Some stuff make it into the show. Some stuff gets sorted, and it's just mud and rock, and there are no gems. I hope you believe that some of these are gems. But whatever. Okay, wing it. Uh, people use this all the time. Just wing it. Of course, it means to improvise. 
And I kind of wanted to know, why wing it? Like, I thought a bird, does it got to do with flying? But it doesn't. The expression comes from the theater. And it, it alludes to an actor studying his part in the wings. The wings were either side of the stage. Actors were often waiting in the wings. And that's where that expression comes from. Uh, and if one actor was suddenly called to replace another that was sick or, you know, couldn't make it or whatever, um, another actor would be waiting in the wings. And then they would wing it because they weren't really, they hadn't had the part memorized, but somebody had to do it. And so that is where that comes from if you feel like being the smartest person in the room. Okay, moving on. This one has been brewing in me for a while. I'm going to put my teacher hat on. Hold on a second. I have to in this drawer to keep it away from the dog. Pretty much fills the whole drawer. And for those of you that don't know, my teacher hat is a giant oversized foam cowboy hat. Uh, it's dark blue. I never told you that before, but pieces of it have been bitten away by the dog, so I have to take better care of it. But I'm putting it on right now. And now, I want to talk about the three-fifths compromise. Okay? It, the three-fifths compromise was in the 1800s, and it was a compromise that was made between slave states and free states. As the country was determining its future and was split on whether or not slavery should continue as an institution. There were many compromises that had to be made in order to keep the union together, which was one of the most important things. Now, the free states believed that freeing the slaves were, was just as important as keeping the union together, which is why they decided to fight a war over it. But, um, just quickly, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States declared that any person who was not free would, not, would be counted as three-fifths of a free individual. Right? It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. You're, you only count as three-fifths of a person. It's dehumanizing and degrading, and it is often brought up in politics. Um. Even even to this day, people bring it up as a reflection of just how horribly African Americans were treated during this period, and and I say amen to bringing it up and and recognizing it and reminding people of this particular stage of our development as a country. I believe we've come far, much further, obviously, from that point. But this three fifths compromise it, it needs clarification. Because I've seen people use it. Kamala Harris just recently used it. And she used it as a way of reflecting on how awful our country was at this time. And it is true that aspects of our country at this time were awful. But the manner in which she used it kind of got me thinking about it. Um, and, and I'll get more into that as I, as I explain this. But the purpose of, of the reason why they had to decide how much slaves would count as people was because they were determining the population of the state. So say it was a slave state, and, and we had to decide how many people are in that state so that we could adequately represent them in Congress. House of Representatives is determined by the population of the state. For every so many people, there is another representative in the House of Representatives. <clears throat> and so there was a disagreement about how, how much a slave should count as a person. 
and the compromise ended up landing on three-fifths. Now, this sounds like a very demeaning thing, but from the free state perspective, the reason why they didn't want slaves to count as people, as awful as that sounds, the reason they didn't want slaves to count as people would be because it would give those slave states greater representation in the House of Representatives. And their vote would probably further the policy of slavery. So the free states didn't want those representatives in Congress because they would have a voice. They would, they would, they would amplify the voice of the, of the representatives in the slave states. And so as odd as it sounds, the free states wanted slaves to count as not as people at all. And that was because of how much they cared about them and how much they wanted them free. So they finally compromised on three-fifths. Now, I heard Kamala Harris talking about it as though, as though it was a, a terrible thing. As though almost it sounded like she wanted them to count as a whole person. Like how terrible it was that they were only counted as three-fifths. If only they could have been counted as people, because they're people too. What that would have meant at the time was that there would be a louder voice in Congress that was pro-slavery. Either she knows that and is lying, or she doesn't know that. I, I would hate to believe that she doesn't know that. Um, so I honestly don't know, but it, I found it very off-putting that a person in such a position of leadership would misuse this reference. And so, I don't know, if you hear the passion in my voice, that's my teacher side. I just, I don't like it when things are not right, and they're pushed in a way that affects other people's choices, I guess is the best way to put it. And so in the future, if you've ever been using this three-fifths compromise as an example of something, remember that it was, that it was because the free states did not want representation of slave states pro-slavery in Congress. And so it was actually in favor of their humanity. As opposite as it sounds, I don't want to count them as people. It was because they, they favored their humanity. They wanted them to have actual agency. And then the way to do that wasn't to put more representatives in Congress that were post-slavery. It was to end slavery. Hence, we fought a war that took more American lives than any other war. So I'm proud of that myself. I know sometimes it's uh, considered... Uh, oafish to be a patriot. Uh, but and it doesn't mean that I favor this administration or that administration. It means I favor the Constitution. And I favor the process of gradually growing, developing, making it better. Like I said before, the first set of laws in our Constitution are amendments. That is to say, changes. The pliability of the Constitution is what makes it great. It can improve just as a person can improve. It can be bettered just as a person can be bettered, and it allows for freedom. And it started all the way back then. So that is what I have to say about that. And I will take another quick break, and then I will get to larger things. Hello, and welcome back to Sam Walking in the World. That message was brought to you by Ferris Bueller running across backyards through barbecues trying to get home before his parents find out that he's gone. All right, here we go. Larger things. I've got a couple to talk about, as I said. 
Um, the first thing I want to talk about is coping with uncertainty. Um, part of what made me a very unhappy person was that I needed certainty. I know I've talked about this before in other podcasts, but um, I have a little bit more to say. So I've heard the expression up in the air. I don't know. It's up in the air. Uh, we, we really don't know yet. We won't know yet. It's up in the air. Kind of like this COVID thing we're going through. And I need resolution. You know, I never think about why or what my feelings will be after I get resolution. I'll probably probably find another thing that's up in the air to worry about. Or at least I used to. I still do sometimes. But someone gave me the advice to embrace the uncertainty, as hard as it sounds. I mean, you don't have to love it, <clears throat> but it does exist. And wishing it away doesn't make it go away faster. It just changes your state of mind. And and like I say, if you're the kind of person who's trying to be the, the best person you can be and do the next right thing, then usually things take care of themselves. And if they don't, at least it's not your fault. That's what I tell myself. Trust the weight, this person says. Trust the weight. And it's difficult. And uh, I was also told everything, in a, in a way, everything is in a state of becoming. Nothing really ever stays the same. Everything is sort of evolving or devolving, one way or the other. It's very, very hard to keep things the same. It just doesn't happen. And like they say, the only constant is change. <clears throat> uh, and for some reason, we, I especially, have a need the irrational need for stasis. I want like an equilibrium that stays. And it's just, it's very fleeting. I guess like everything else. But this person also told me that when nothing is certain, anything is possible. Never think about that. When, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. I kind of like the idea of anything being possible. People talk about it all the time like it's a great thing, yet at the same time they want to lock things in. And over time I've discovered that what has worked for me, and if you try it, I think you'll find it works, is almost think of like a, a, like puzzle pieces. Or like those, those children's games where they would have to put the block that was shaped a certain way into the hole that was shaped the same way, like a star or a triangle or a moon or a square, or a circle. And we try to kind of, <clears throat> we, at least I, have tried to jam the thing in where I wanted it to go. And it just doesn't work that way. And in a sense, in a sense, sometimes things can fit in more than one place, and you're not sure where they're supposed to go, and therein lies the uncertainty. Like if they were all round blocks, just slightly different, slightly more oval than other ones. And, and you had to kind of try each one in each hole. I, I, I don't know where I'm going with it. I guess I do know where I'm going with this, but I'm sure it sounds weird. But there will be a point. Um, what has worked for me is just to kind of hover the piece over the hole, so to speak. Not push it in. Just kind of leave it there and, and move it a little bit go to another one and kind of leave it there and move it a little bit, but not try to push it in. And I think the universe has a force that does the locking in. 
we can put it near it and and do our best to put it in the right spot but in most cases we cannot lock it in it's the universe that locks it in where it is meant to go and it really has worked it really has worked it hasn't always been <clears throat> according to the plan that i had but if i accepted the uncertainty of what was supposed to go where finally uh, things tended to go where they were supposed to go and it has made me me um, me me I'm mumbling now it has made me a much happier person and I, I i get fear sometimes uncertainty brings fear and for me and this is going to sound wacky but say with me fear is the most telltale sign that i'm pretending that i'm going to live forever fear is the most telltale sign that i am pretending that i'm going to live forever what do i mean by that when i'm afraid of losing something especially my life i'm under the illusion that anything is actually mine to keep forever least of all my life kind of under anything we have what undergirds everything we have is our life we, sometimes we know it readily and sometimes we're it's you know subconsciously that we think that but like if you think about things like term the expressions people use like i'm trying to make a living your job is important because your job earns you money the money allows you to provide the things that the people in your life including yourself need to live we talk about quality of life sometimes you have to make decisions to make a little bit less money but do something that you enjoy or um I don't know, other things like that. But underneath it all, what we're trying to aim at is our, the quality of our life. Underneath the quality of your home or your yard or your car is your life. But I'm going to die. You are going to die. This is the only certain fact. And maybe taxes. Uh, but you're going to die. So my worries about things in this life would only be sensible were that not the case. All my problems cease just as my life ceases. You know, whether I live only until I get hit by a bus tomorrow or I live to the ripe old age of 100 in the vast expanse of infinity, there is no difference. So I guess what I'm getting at is all of it has purpose or none of it does. All of it has purpose, or none of it does. I have no choice but to choose between those two things. I can pretend that the choice doesn't exist. Just float around, uh, trying to think about nothing, least of all my existence. But that's just not how we're built. We end up thinking about it anyway. So... What I've tried to do in these situations of uncertainty is, one, recognize that these problems are only, are only going to last as long as my life. And my life is going to end. All of these worries only continue with such power over us if we don't remind ourselves that we too are going to end. And I don't mean it in a depressing way. I kind of mean it in a, an optimistic way. It gives you a reason to care and embrace everything that's going on. So I try to make friends with the worst thing that could possibly happen. 
Are you going for a medical checkup or you're going to a job interview or you're going to ask a girl out <clears throat> or a guy? Um, I was trying to think, what's the worst thing that could happen? Considering my finite existence. You know, I, I used to put so much pressure on myself to have things go the way I needed them to go, to fight against that uncertainty. When in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that big a deal. And if does, something does go wrong, if the worst thing does happen, at least I don't have to have shame about it. You know, it's like that last moment. you got to keep your eyes open. It's hard because when, when the thing is coming, you, you have this urge to squint and protect. If you keep your eyes open. I think that's what's great about professional athletes. They know how to keep their eyes open in the last second. Whether it's hitting a baseball or shooting a basketball or hitting a golf ball, whatever it is. Their eyes are open right to that last second. They're open to the world. So if I have any advice here, I would be remember that your life is temporary. In the context of that, what really is worth worrying about? And either everything means something or nothing does. I choose to believe that everything means something. That my life does have a purpose. And who knows, there may even be something after it. And, and given that choice I've made to believe that everything means something, good and bad, are easier to embrace. And I, you know, I, I used to complain so much about my problems. And then I asked myself, what would happen if I could magically eliminate my problems? Just a, a magic wand. They're all gone. At the time, I would probably invent more things to worry about. I would create things, problems. Because for some reason in that state, I, I, I thought I wanted resolution, but then when I got it, I guess I really wanted crisis. A wise woman once told me to try my best to not allow the circumstances of my life to determine my level of contentment. Sounds counterintuitive. Don't allow the circumstances of your life to determine your level of contentment. Not how good your car is. Not whether or not you're ill. Not whether or not you've lost something or someone. Not whether or not you just won the lottery. Not whether or not the girl just said yes when you asked her out on a date. Not whether or not you got a promotion or you got the job at the job interview. Those things make you happy and they give you pleasure. But your contentment ought to be a more constant thing. And she said to me, it should be based on something larger. Larger than the immediate things that are occurring in your life. And for me, since I believe in God and I believe everything means something, um, I base my contentment on that, on this underlying feeling that everything matters. I trust in the goodness of the universe. It sounds so strange to me now as I'm a happy self. My unhappy self did not trust the universe, probably because I wasn't doing the right thing. And whether that actually adds to the universe like karma and comes back to me, or it's just that I get to have this guilt-free feeling that I'm trying my best to be the person I'm supposed to be. 
I can live comfortably in the knowledge that I did not intentionally cause these problems. So I hope that meant something. It means something to me, but um, sometimes I end up rambling. But that is what I have to say about dealing with uncertainty. And I think I'm going to postpone the other thing that I was going to talk about for my next episode because I really have been going on and I appreciate your patience letting me vent like this. So I will uh, talk about the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement and uh, Alec Baldwin <laughs> and my personal interaction with him regarding it uh, next time. So we can look forward to that in episode 18. But until then, thank you for listening. I hope to see you soon, hopefully tomorrow.